Welcome to What Happened to You, the podcast that interviews footballers of the past today about their interviews from the past. Don't worry, it will all make sense when you listen. On this episode, supported by the set pieces, we talk to former Stirling Albion, Celtic, Hearts, Millwall, Sunderland and Scotland forward John Calhoun about his private life interview for Match Magazine from around 1986. You can find the original interview on our Twitter feed at WHTYPod and on our dedicated channel over at the Set Pieces website, www.thesetpieces.com. Full name? John Mark Cahoon. Uh, birthplace and date? Uh, I was born in Stirling because we were living at Oldham at the time because my mother and my father was playing for Oldham Athletic. But my mother came up to Scotland, drove nine and a half hours to uh, have me in Stirling because at that time the regulations from the world governing bodies where you had to be born in your country to play for them. So my mother drove up to, to Stirling to have me. Nine and a half, nine and a half hours. Wow, there you go. So she had uh, plenty of foresight then to make sure you were born on the right side of the border. Well, not as much foresight as she. She could have the politics of, uh, of the National Association's changed and it went to parentage. So she's probably spent nine and a half hours in a, in a, in a car she didn't have to. <laughs> um, and your height? Uh, five foot, probably five foot seven. It used to be five foot seven and a half, but as you get older, you get smaller. Well, your, your height gets smaller. Yeah, and uh, do you still weigh 10 stone 10? Um, yes, I do. I do weigh 10. Well, I, I don't, I've got a good um, idea that I could get down to 10 stone 10, uh, 10 again pretty quickly if I chopped at least one of my arms and one of my legs off. And um, that would probably bring me down to about 10 10. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I was ever 10 10, to be fair. Uh, well, John, it's a great to have you here on uh, What Happened to You. Um, we're going to look back at an interview you did with Match Magazine for a series they called The Private Life Of, which contains very little football-related content. Um, but we'll still talk about your career as well uh, to find out a bit more about you from back in the day. So, as you said, you were born in Stirling uh, and you started out at your hometown club, uh, Stirling Albion, where you did well enough to earn a, a big move to Celtic in 1983 and you stayed there for a couple of years. Um, and that, you were only 20 at the time. Uh, so how did you handle that step up both in terms of the matters on the pitch, but also all the other stuff that goes on with when you start swimming in that old firm goldfish bowl? Well, to be honest, I can't really remember it being too much of an issue for me. But I was 20, as you said, and, and when you're 20, you just think the world's your oyster. You don't, you don't get phased by much. You know, I, mean? I, got, I got kind of phased when I went on to the... Uh, the bus the first day and it was it was people that I would um, players that I'd been watching as a fan because I was a I was a Celtic fan and um, you know I'd been to games that season European games that season and then all of a sudden um, I signed for them and they um, they invited me to go down to to Nottingham Forest for the quarter final um, for the first leg so so I got there we rushed back to get the bus they held the bus up for me and um, uh, and and to do the obligatory um, uh, scarf over the head shot that the photographers always want. They got Danny McGray and Murdo McLeod and Paul McStay to come off the bus and do it with me, which was, um, which was quite remarkable for me. Um, but I can't, I can't really remember being that phased. I knew it, it was kind of different because when I played with Stirling, I was a striker. Um, I, I, I scored 
some silly amount of goals up to the time of signing me in November. Um, but I went to Celtic and because I think because I was small, because they scouted me. I know, I know the chief scout and John Kelman watched me a million times, actually about 40 times. So I don't know what I knew what kind of player I was, but they kind of then shuffled me out to the wing. And I think because I was I was small and, and I'd always worn the number seven. And so I became, from that day on, I kind of became a winger and they turned mm. me into a winger. But it also might have been to to do with the fact that they had uh, Brian McClare, Frank McGarvey, um, uh, Alan McAnally joined, Morris Johnson joined, um, Jim Melrose was there at the time. So maybe the fact that I wasn't their class that day, mm. <laughs> that they decided I was going to be a winger. But um, you know, playing for your boyhood team, you know, what's... Um, what could have been better than that? Yeah. Well, as you said, the, the competition for places was stiff at Parkhead. Uh, and a couple of years later, you moved on to Hearts, the club that most people associate you with, uh, and where you were playing when Match Magazine caught up with you. Um, it was yeah. a bit different then in terms of expectations because both Edinburgh clubs were pretty much on the periphery of things in Scotland in the mid-80s. And not just because of the usual suspects, but you also had the so-called new firm then, uh, Alex yeah. Ferguson's Aberdeen, Jim McLean's Dundee United, who were winning trophies, and both were getting to European finals. Um, would you say then that it was the, the the last great halcyon period for top flight Scottish football? Because be, back then it was beyond just Rangers and Celtic. In terms of depth, absolutely. Because you mean that the, the, you mean you look at that the Aberdeen side, you mean Miller McLeish, um, you mean Mark McGee was a top player, Eric Black who aren't playing France and. Um, as, as a top coach, um, uh, Gordon, Gordon Strachan was there. Um, you mean the top top players? Uh, Jim Bett, who who came to Hearts laterally in his career, one of the finest footballers I ever played with. Um, and then you mean you had Dundee United, who you mean you mean people talk about Bill McLeish. Um, David Neary was was one of the best centre backs I've ever seen or ever played against. Mm. You mean and if he'd moved. I mean, he could have been spoken in the same terms and breath as, as, as Alan Hansen because that's how good he was. Um, you had Morris Malpa, you had Paul Sturrock, they're top players. And, and they proved they're top players because they went into Europe and, and competed and beat, even beating Barcelona away, home and away, and, and top, top players. Um, and then we came through the, the, the you mean, we had a, we had a couple of a good run in Europe. And, and then you came on to the, the kind of last house period was probably when, when Rangers... Um, uh, brought up all their top players, and then you had Martin O'Neill's um, Seville Celtic team. You mean, you mean, uh, you mean Henry Larson did it mm. at Barcelona, Manchester United. Uh, you know, we we got to see him on a on a weekly basis at his peak. I think that's the difference. I think now when you see players that are playing in Scotland, we see them in the formation years. Yeah, and I don't mean formation as in youth coaching and youth um, youth football. I mean forming the foundation of what they do to become top players. So Virgil van Dijk, you know, I think now that is what we, we, we can't hold them long enough, purely on, on, on economic grounds, Mark. Mm. So let's get to that match interview, which uh, features yes. a, a fantastic picture of you wearing that tremendous silver Umbro Hearts Away kit from the uh, infamous 85-86 season, which we'll get to shortly. Yep. Um, but first, let's take a look at your interests outside of football back then, which were politics, music and golf. Now, it wasn't unusual for footballers to be into golf back then and music too. And we'll come to your musical tastes in a minute as well. Um, but politics generally wasn't something players were known to take much of an interest in. Uh, in fact, when asked what you would like to do if you could be a fly on the wall, 
you answered that you'd like to be in a cabinet meeting at 10 Downing Street. Um, did, you, yeah. did, did you come across many other politically minded players in your time? Not really, um, but birds of a feather flock together, and, and you mean I, I kind of gravitated towards the ones that were, and there were few and far between. Um, you know, Brian McClare at Celtic, who, who I'm still good friends with, um, was a really good um, good guy, and again one of the top top players. You know what what a player he was. You I mean he went from Celtic down to Manchester United and became the first player. To score twenty goals since Jaws Best, mm. I mean, and you mean he's been playing in Scotland with Motherwell and then 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 Celtic. Um, so Brian had a keen interest in politics and still does, and we still chew the fat and and kind of moan. Um, I suppose that's what talking about politics is always has been. Mm. Um, but no, it wasn't really something that was um, that was uh, uh, widely uh, admired within the dressing room. Um, but that's again, as I say, that's probably one of the reasons that that, that I liked it. You know I mean it's, um, but you mean it, my my interest in politics um, came from when I I came because uh, I came into football from a part time basis. As did a lot of players in Scotland at the time. You know, we it wasn't that you had a load of overstocked academies that 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 people have, in my opinion, got false hope of becoming professional footballers. You mean that whole there was a whole group then. Um, that that learned their trade at, at lower league Scottish teams like um, you know, Mac, uh, Alan McAnally, Air United, Morris Johnson, Patrick Thistle, Brian, at, no, they're not not part time in the same way. You were at Motherwell. Um, you mean you had uh, Ted McMinn who came from Queen of South to go to Rangers, who was a, you know, a really mm. good player. Um, and some of the players that I've already mentioned came came that route. Um, um, but now that they don't have that, and, and so I was a part-time player, and, and I was a, a painter and decorator. I'm a fully, a fully qualified painter and decorator, and um, and thankfully, when I walked off that building site in a place in in Clackmannanshire to sign for Celtic, I made a vow to myself that I've been very lucky, or that I wouldn't work again in my life, and it's kind of turned out that way, that way because I've been lucky enough to do things that have they been hard at times? Of course they have. But as it worked as in the way that it was worked when I worked as a painter and decorator, absolutely not. It wasn't in the, the, those times. So, so that time I, I kind of became interested in, and my favourite book was a, a book called Ragged Trigger Philanthropist, which is, which is easier to read than it is to say. And mm -hmm. it was about social injustice and in the, in the painting um, and, and building trade really in the, in the, in the early early. 20th century and, and things hadn't really changed in the building sites and so I, I looked at various political um, parties you may obviously look at came through communism came through um, socialism conservatism Scottish nationalism and, and I decided at that point that um, that socialism was the one for me and um, so yeah it became it became something that became really involved in and really interested in I was a member of the Labour Party for, for a lot of years and campaigned openly um, and thought about Thought about one point running for a seat in the in the House of Commons, but um, but various other factors um, decided that I didn't do that. Um, well, as promised, let's move on to the music you were listening yeah. to in the mid eighties. I think Which it's is a lot more interesting. <laughs> yeah, it can be. That's for sure. And I think it's fair to say you were banging to your music then. Um, not only did you declare that your record collection was your most prized possession, 
uh, in the interview. Yeah. Um, your favourite piece of clothing was a Ted Hawkins t-shirt. Now, yeah. I'll ask you to enlighten us about him in a minute for those not in the know. Um, uh, your most famous friend outside football was Lawrence Donegan, bass player with both the Bluebells and Lloyd Cole and the Commotions, uh, now a well-known journalist and author. Uh, the person you most wanted to meet was Johnny Marr of the Smiths, so he could teach you guitar. And your chosen yep. specialist subject on Mastermind would have been pop music. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's pretty rare to find many footballers from the 80s who didn't profess to be either a Phil Collins or Lionel Richie fan in, uh, in these old interviews. So let, let's start with Ted Hawkins, shall we? Tell us a little bit about him. Ted Hawkins was, he sadly passed away now, but he was a fair age then. He was um, a busker um, from, uh, from Los Angeles and... Uh, we made you know, made made records um, very simply at the time, and and did a lot of, of cover versions by being a busker. And um, I saw him various times in Edinburgh, the Queen's Hall, and, um, and he played always played smaller venues because had a huge following. But it was one man on the guitar, and and uh, you mean sang all the classics and and did some of his old stuff, but a really tuneful old American. Um, who just have had a really difficult, tough life, mm. um, but just kind of hits you in the heart at times, and and just lifts you at other times, and, that, and that's what that's where I like my music. I like my music where um, some of my favourite albums are, are make me really, really happy, um, and then really, really sad at the same time, which is the two emotions that I think as human beings that we're we're um, sometimes ill-equipped to deal with both of them. Mm. Well, you also mentioned Billy Bragg and the Smiths in this interview. So, yeah, it's pretty obvious your tastes were more on the alternative side back in the 80s. Would you say it's the same The same now? Do you, do you keep up with modern music or are you still very much rooted in the stuff you listened to back then? Kind of still, um, still kind of indie, indie music. I mean, there's a Scottish band um, called Frightened Rabbit who are mm. amazing either national in, in the United States and, 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 and you mean a lot of them are, are kind of crossover into to different parts of my life, Mark. You mean the Nationals, um, uh, Mr. November was also in effect the theme tune for for uh, Barack Obama's run to the White House and um, uh, two things that, that really interested me. Um, but yeah, so I would say mostly indie, but I, but I like I like a lot of my, my Tastes are a lot wider now as you get older and you realise that that you can't... You, when you're young, I think, and I haven't been long, young for a long time, so I can't say this is the truth, where when I, you liked bands, or when I liked bands when I was young, then they became um, successful. I kind of moved away from them mm. because I liked them when they were mine and nobody else knew about them. Yeah. But I think as you get older, you realise that's, a, that's a, a kind of um, a, a bit um, of a myopic way to, to look at the world that, that's better than everybody else. I would love it. I really loved Frightened Rabbit and loved Scott Hutchinson's music and that. Um, uh, but back then, you loved somebody. They came popular. Well, you moved on. Um, but but I would say yeah, that my my my, my tastes are are, uh, are very similar. You mean know, a lot still a lot of shoegaze and a lot of the <laughs> um, what people would call miserable uh, music. But that's that's kind of me. But I do. You know, the other stuff I like. I always like a little bit of Scandinavian first aid kit is is tremendous. Um, just now, and they have a couple of great records last last few years. Uh, but yeah, but probably still, still the end. I've not, I've not moved over to to the boy bands and the, and the girl bands quite yet. When I'm um, and and when I listen to um, Ken Bruce's Popmeister, when it comes past the nineties and and noughties, then I'm kind of I'm kind of not getting any more than 
than um, 18 points a day when I get uh, when I have my go at that. So let's get back to that 85-86 season. And yeah. af- after a ropey beginning to the league campaign, Hearts went on an incredible seven-month unbeaten run uh, yeah. and reached the Scottish Cup final. Uh, the old firm yeah. and new firm were repeatedly on the end of defeats to you. Um, then yeah. there came the two games in that first week of May 1986, which uh, stood between you and the League and Cup double and also in immortality in Hearts history. Um, what happened next is one of the great stories of misfortune and heartbreak in Scottish football. Tell us a little bit about that season as a whole uh, and more specifically those two fateful games, firstly against Dundee on the final day of the league season and then the cup final a week later against Aberdeen. Well, the season we'd started uh, uh, relatively well. We we got a, a draw at home to Celtic. I'd scored on my debut. And Celtic Pomestay scored a great goal in the last minute to get them a draw. And then I think a, a couple of weeks later, our next home game, we beat Hibs at home. But then we didn't win again until, until the end of September. And I think we're close to the bottom of the league. Mm. Um, but we, we had a team that... that knew what they were doing. You I mean they were all kind of young guys, hungry but with a smattering of, of experience. You have Sandy Jarman who who was sometimes you get players of the season who you're not sure whether they should be. Sandy Jarman was the best player in Scotland at thirty six years old that year. Mm. By a mile. By a mile, there was no question. And and I linked with Donald and, and I got um one of the greatest honours of my of my professional life um a couple of years ago and I got inducted into the Haas Hall of Fame. And Alec McDonald was there to get one for himself and, and Sandy as a management duo um, uh, from the club. And um, I, I stood up and I said, when, I was, when I was getting mine, I said, well, if, if I'm being honest, talking about Alec, if um, I was, I was um, grading my coaches in the top 20, I'm not sure Alec would get in the top 20. And I could see from, from where I was that his face wasn't particularly pleased but if I was saying about man managers, he would be in the top one to paraphrase Brian Clough. Because I'm not sure we played any more systems than the one that we played the most. We played one system. We played a 4-3-3 with um, uh, Mew Wade, uh, Sandy Clark up front, uh, who was a good player. Um, John Robertson, sniffing off him. Craig Levine and Sandy Jarn at the back. Two experienced fullbacks. Two good players, good balance in midfield, Kenny Black and, and Gary Mackay, and a setter in, in Neil Berry, who, who wasn't the most technically gifted, but he could rat and get the ball back. Everybody had a job and everybody knew what their job was. And Alec never asked you to do anything that you couldn't do. So he never asked me to go up and use trickery and beat somebody. Yeah, just find a space, get the ball in, Sandy unlock it down, Rob will get the glory. That was it. That was the game plan the whole year. Mm. We, we had great fun. It was amazing, um, and, and people laugh when I tell them this. I think I told this. They may have told this story. That our week that year, everybody talks about us being. We were a fixed team in the league by a mile. We pressed in the same way that they press now, and, and um, uh, everybody talks about. They've all this fancy language now. It's fancy um, new stuff, so that people like that have not been in the game for the last ten years don't know what they're talking about about high presses and low blocks and and match day minus one and plus ones and all this stuff. Before any of that was fancy, Alan McDonald and Sandy Jarvin had a simple philosophy. Get the ball back as high as you can, as quickly as you can, 
and keep it in the, fair, the forward areas because that's where we're good. That's where we're really good because we'll make things happen. Sandy will batter people about and he was a better technical player than people thought. Robbo had an instinct for finishing and goals and where to be. Um, and I would buzz about. Gary Mackay would get up. Kenny Black would give support. And and it was simple. The game was simple. Um, so we all knew what we were doing. And then we went on this run and, and we just kept winning. And it was just got momentum. And it's, when it's in a played in teams, it's difficult. You can't get out of your, your losing runs. Well, we couldn't get out of our winning runs. We won games that we had no right to win just because you knew some psychology. You knew you were going to win. Mm. Of course, then we we came to we had to just avoid defeat in the last game of the season. Um, and everybody goes on about oh, St. Mirren threw it. Well, it's irrelevant because we hadn't our own hands. We just had to go up there and get a draw. Yeah. Everybody's going about oh, five. You mean who did, who who beat um, St. Mirren five 0 Then it was four 0 at half time. But it was irrelevant. We just had to do it ourselves, and we didn't do it. So the question is, did we bottle it? Did we bottle it? Well, I think if you bottle it, I think you bottle it with six games to go. I think you bottle yeah. it when you go up to Dundee United when they've got a really good team and you go and beat them 3-0. I think you bottle it when you're playing Clay Bank at home and you're playing awful and you still get the win. So I'm not sure whether we bottled it, but we came up short. Yeah. That's what we did. And, and I don't care what hard supporters, how they think they felt, they never felt any worse than us. They might have felt as bad as us, but they never felt any worse than us. And we put our heart and soul in it. And, and a lot of us knew it was probably our only chance to win the league. We might have won a cup, but a lot of us knew it was our only chance to win the league. And we came up short. So, so you mean, I've been asked many times, did we bottle it? I don't think we did. Did we come up short? I absolutely think we did. The next week, we're just done. You win mm. one. I think if you win one, you win the other. Um, Aberdeen were a really good side, but we were... You mean, it's hard, it's hard to explain how much mentally losing it means to you. You know, we're driving on the bus down... Um, in Dundee, when you drive back, you drive back in the, in the uh, there's a two-lane, sort of the Kingsway, and other buses crawling past all other fans. And, and, and I talk a lot, as you hear, and, and, and I like words, but the, the looks on the faces of the, of, of the, of the fans, is indescri- I can't describe it. They're just hollow, and we get it. Um, and at that point, you feel you've let everybody down because you're not, reflecting on what you've actually done, where you've come from. Because we we were, and most pundits, uh, not that they know anything, because I was one, so I should know that. Most pundits' predictions, we were in more of them to get relegated than to stay up. Not to win the league, to stay up. And we nearly won the league. So then we we we, we lost the, the, the cup. And then we come back and, and um, our chairman, Wallace Mercer, who was a larger than life flamboyant character and and he put this big um event on for the players and their wives and the staff at, at the um uh, the hotel big hotel in edinburgh and our fans were there and they were there in the thousands and we were crying with them they were crying with us and they were there to two three in the morning outside the hotel cheering us and not once did any of them criticize us at any point Ever. Nobody has ever said anything about that season from a Hearts perspective. That, that's, that's being a heart supporter, died in the womb, maroon, that was ever critical of that. The support that we got after that 
is just, I don't think it would happen at many clubs. Don't think it would happen at many clubs. And it, and it bonded us. We were, we were, we were really close to supporters in that that era, for a long, long time after that. Um, and we came up short with them on a few occasions. Um, but maybe it just was that we just weren't good enough to win the thing. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe we didn't get a bit of luck at the right times. But but maybe we were just. Sometimes you just got to look at yourself. Eh? Take responsibility for for your own actions. But the support and the that 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 evening in the hotel is etched upon my memory, um, and will be until I uh, until I shuffle off this mortal coil. Is it is it safe to mention Albert Kidd's name uh, around Tynecastle yet? Um, listen, Albert was just doing his job. Eh? Yeah, he was just doing his job. Yeah, I mean that's 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 just the game. There's winners and losers. You mean it, it was difficult? It was difficult to. You mean and and you mean this I know. If we had won the league, I would have had 90% less conversations about that day than I have had. Because we didn't become immortal, we became infamous. Second to many, and there goes the final whistle. And let me repeat that Parts apparently have lost the championship. They've gone all these number of games, 37 undefeated, and then suddenly, on the last day, the last afternoon, the last 10 minutes of this championship, they lose out. Utterly cruel. Well, after that disappointment, you stayed on at Hearts for another five years, and although you were regular contenders for honours, you always seemed to fall short, both in the league and the cup competitions. A situation not helped by the resurgent Rangers and all... Their, you know, their unrivaled spending power uh, under Graeme Souness. Um, but you did have a Euro, UEFA Cup quarter-final appearance in 1989 and a narrow 2-1 aggregate defeat to the mighty Bayern Munich. Um, you actually won the first leg at Tynecastle, which must have been up there as one of your most memorable experiences as a player. Oh, absolutely. It was amazing. And, and now the noise at Tynecastle is amazing with its with new stands. But, but then it was... It was unbelievable you, because you had, as I said, they were crammed in. And you had this, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Tynecastle, there was a brewery that sat behind it and all you could yeah. smell was the hops. You could smell the hops and it was like, any time I smell it, it takes me back to the days. And, and, and our lights were never as powerful as, as they seem to be now. So it was always kind of a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a kind of dusky, floodlit evening. And it was the colours. It was the... The noise, the crackle of excitement, the crackle of excitement of the fans. They're not going to watch some men or Celtic or Rangers playing against us. They're going to watch. And it, it, it was different then because, you mean, who knew where Mostar was? We didn't know mm. where Mostar was. You mean, everyone knows where it is now because of the war and because of Google and because you can find something. But then, you know, we, we, we played the village Mostar in that room. We played Austria, Vienna. And you mean, we. we um, we, we went and played, we played Bologna, we played Atletico Madrid, and not in that year, but in different years. And they're coming to Tyne Castle, and, and you mean the atmospheres, and we, we beat a lot of them. Eh? We beat a lot of them. We beat mm. um, Atletico Madrid 3 1 at, um, at our place. And you played my last European game was Red Star Belgrade, and went out and away goals. Mm. Um, yeah, but amazing nights, the noise, and, and the Bayern Munich game was. Was was unbelievable. They're good players. They were good. Say they were. They were Bayern Munich. 
Do you know what I mean? That's all you need to know. You're one of the greatest names in the history of the game. And he went over there and, and, and I had a, a great chance one-on-one um, with the goalkeeper and, and uh, I missed it. And then I hit the bar um, weirdly with a header in the second half. Um, and, and Klaus Agenthaler, you know, a great German player, scored an absolute rascal from about 20 yards, which which um, he had in his locker. Um, and it, it was amazing, but you mean much to my chagrin. Um, my goat is Diego Maradona. You mean um, mm. a flawed a genius, but a genius uh, to me nonetheless. And and I was lucky enough to do a book with him not um, uh, a few years ago and, and meet him a few times. And they say never meet your heroes, and I'm not buying that. He was <laughs> when you pinned him down, he was tremendous. Um, we had to wait. Um, we had to wait eight hours for him in a Madrid hotel um, for him to come down, and and um, he always had a different manager. And then, um, obviously, me and the guys we were with were moaning about him. And, um, and he goes, yeah, no problem. Mm-hmm. Just go and find another Diego to interview. Yeah. And if we beat Bayern Munich, we would have um, we would have played Diego Maradona's Napoli in that semi-final. Um, but what ifs? What ifs? Um, our lives are all full of what ifs. And, and I tend to think, not think about, well, what if we had played? But I'll tell you what, how many people got to play against Bayern Munich? So you mean I, 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 of course, but of course I've got regrets. But sometimes you've got to take stock, man. Just enjoy what you have. Well, you mentioned about what ifs, and if we look at this interview again, one of the questions in there is, what if anything frightened you, and what's the biggest risk you've ever taken outside of football? To which you replied to both, Gary Mackay's driving. Um, was he that bad? Yes. <laughs> and I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not in regular contact with Gary, but I'm not sure it'll change that much. To be honest, but we again we were talking about about how, and I was talking about somebody about this this today, and, and um, about how cosseted everything is just now. Now I'm not an advocate with you know players should be um, go back to what we had to do. And you look at the pitches now; they're amazing. Mm. I mean, you look at that, the, those pitches and, and and some of those some of those European games away. I mean, you look at Diego Maradona's goal against England in Mexico, and everybody says, "Oh, but well, you look at the pitch." The ball's bouncing like mm. all over the place, and, and you know, so things have changed. I'm not saying they've changed for the better or worse, but they've changed. But but we had to drive. We got tra- changed at Tynecastle and had to drive. Sometimes we, we didn't have a training ground, so we had to drive to wherever the club could get to train on that day. And sometimes we didn't. We were at top of the league. We had to go to this place just out the back of Murrayfield called Rosebourne Park, and and I'm not kidding you. We had to clean the dog shit. Off the training pitch before the, we had to get our apprentices to, to carry the goals from Tyne Castle, which is a, it's a bit of a schlep, let me tell you, um, to there so that we could we could train to try and win the league. It's unbelievable, but we never. It wasn't like we'd get in and say, "Oh, this is a disgrace." He just got on with it. That's what we did. Mm. We we didn't have a sense of entitlement, and we didn't have a, a, a sense of of we should be treated any different from, from anybody else in the world. It was like, we were lucky to be playing here. Right? Well, you survived Mackay's driving long enough to earn a couple of caps of Scotland and you moved down south to play for Millwall and Sunderland. Um, but both those spells... I got spells a were... against the greatest of world football. You forgot to mention who that was. Uh, okay. well, well, Saudi Arabia was one of them, right? Saudi Arabia was my debut. And yeah. Malta was my second. Massive game. But, but let me tell you this, not a lot of people would say, I was unbeaten. How many people can say that in the Scot- with a Scotland shirt on, eh? Absolutely. 
I was also without a victory, but I was unbeaten. <laughs> Consistency, I think they call it. My, my, my career, my career, my career, um, my Scotland career lasted about the same length of time as the omnibus edition of EastEnders used to be on on a Sunday. <laughs> for anybody old enough to remember that. Again, again, how lucky am I? Exactly. It's amazing. It's amazing. Do you know what I mean? I was a painting decorator. And by the way, I never touched this. What a bad one I was. I was an awful <laughs> painting decorator. I was a great at driving the van for the guys because we used to work four and a half, hour, uh, four and a half day weeks. And if they'd done enough because we were on a price and if we'd done enough, the guys I used to go to the pub, but obviously I never drank. I, I, I didn't drink because I didn't drink, but also because I had a game for Stirling Albion on a Saturday. So I only had one job, which was to get everybody home safely. I had to roll them out up their, up their paths Deliver them to their wives, and I used to take the van home for the weekend, and um, and then go and play my, my play for Stirling Albion. <laughs> <laughs> um, about those, about that time in England, you were only there a couple of years, uh, as I said, for Millwall, and then then for a year at Sunderland. Did you just not settle? Um, and and because you, you went you went back to Hearts for for another four year stint. Well, there, there's there's two or three things. One, maybe I wasn't good enough. Two, I didn't handle it well. I didn't handle it because at Millwall, I went down there with Bruce Rieck and, and, and Ian McNeil, and they were tremendous women. Um, and we had good players. We had uh, Colin Cooper, who played with Middlesbrough, Chris Armstrong, who went to um, he went to Tottenham. Alex Ray uh, was there in midfield. Uh, Casey Keller was a goalkeeper. Uh, Phil Barber, who ended up a pass. John Goodman, who ended up Wimbledon and had a really good career. Mm. Um, you know, we had a really, some really good players. But one of the things that I really struggled with in England was I came from a club and an environment in Scotland where the game, the result on the Saturday had consequences for the players. And I went to, I went to England and it, was, it wasn't that they didn't care. It was, it, was that it was a different relationship they had with the game and the players. So if we went, if I was, if I was, at Hearts or I was at Celtic and we got battered on a Saturday we wouldn't go actually physically go out the house probably till the Monday to training mm. and, and one of the reasons is if we went out say say, say we got battered if I was at Hearts and we went in they're all number one sat having a few drinks there would be some punter that would say something else, eh? yeah. you don't deserve to be having a drink blah 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 the way you play today in England it's a lot more anonymous it was like we get in the bus, battered five or six at, at Portsmouth, and, and at Portsmouth it's like it's like in the, right in the middle of the city, and then you come you come through out the, the bus comes out through these like really tight um, uh, houses, old houses. So the bus out. by the time you're at the end of the street, the boys have got the beers cracked open. They're just worried about stopping at so and so for the fish and chips, and couldn't really get in that mentality. Mm. I'm not saying they weren't fully prepared for the next week because we're going to train on the Monday and everything would, would go towards the Saturday and, and when I went to Millwall I did, I did come across the the best coach that I ever had the pleasure to uh, to work with um, that was Steve Harrison who was uh, was the England coach and, and you know, a fantastic man but, but a fantastic coach mm-hmm. you know I mean? and I went and I kind of probably became more of a striker again there at Millwall and and, and Harry used to take you I mean it, it, it take you along to see. I can always remember he took me along to see Tottenham against Porto in the in the I think the UEFA Cup, uh, Cup at that point. 
And he said to me, got some beer, I want you to come here, I want you to just have a look at some of Lineker's movement. So you think, oh, I'm feeling really special. And he'd come in and he'd sit next to you and he'd go, right, watch it, watch Lineker, watch, watch me, watch him moving here, watch him. He just comes back, he comes back, he comes back. And then when the defender takes one step towards him, he goes in. And he sit and tell you those kind of stuff, that kind of stuff, watching Gary Lineker. And he'd be then there with Colin Cooper telling him to watch the centre backs. He'd be there with Chris Armstrong telling him to watch the, the cause obviously uh, Chris was a bit a different kind of striker than me. And and um, and so so yeah, but it was it was an experience that um, yeah, that didn't work for me. And then then after a year, after a year, um, the Bruce Reek had gone. Mick McCarthy, who's my roommate, took um, took over, and um, then sold me to Sunderland. I went to Sunderland, and uh, and then Malcolm Crosby. Um, Got sacked after a pools panel result. I think probably the only, the only <laughs> manager thing is football. So, so they suddenly had been to the cup final that year. They got beat 2 with Liverpool. So I signed for them in the summer. So Malcolm Crosby had been the caretaker, got in the cup final. So they gave him the job full time. And Crosby, Crosby um, uh, took me up there, and um, and so I was playing there, and and then. Um, we went to Tranmere on the Friday night. Tranmere used to play on the Friday night so it didn't clash with Everton or Liverpool. And um, we, game was called off, I think for rain. So, but obviously we were booked to stay the night anyway. So we stay the night, come back the next day and there's a load of games off so the pool's panel sits and it's just Tranmere home win. Draws have got a sack on the Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> and so then Terry Butcher took over, who's my roommate. And so then, Terry sold me hearts. There's a pattern emerging here. Eh? <laughs> anybody, anybody that wanted to get the manager's job, the player manager's job at, uh, at any club, used to just phone me up and ask him if I could room with him. Um, and then I went back to hearts, and um, and they said he should never go back. But it was um, it was a cliche that was wrong for me. I went back and had another fabulous four years there. Well, this is where I normally ask what happened to you after your playing days came to an end, and I think it's no exaggeration to say you've been pretty busy. Um, firstly, can you explain what a former heart striker has in common with William Gladstone, Lord Kitchener, Magnus Magnusson and Winston Churchill, to name just a few illustrious historical figures? And Gordon Brown. And Gordon I Brown, became, of course, yeah. I became the, the rector of the University of Edinburgh, which was an amazing honour, the first footballer um, to do that. And it was in 1997. Uh, the same year as um, as uh, Tony Blair and, uh, and and New Labour came to power, and I was on a very similar ticket to them at the time. I was um, because uh, University of Edinburgh was seen as kind of elitist, um, and and the people from the, the tough places in um, in, uh, in Edinburgh kind of thought they didn't belong there, and, and so I went on a on a on a on a ticket of of access for all. And we did a few good schemes and, and worked hard at that, that, those areas. But yeah, it was um, yeah. So I got uh, I got elected. It was an elected position. I got elected, and I um, I uh, got carried about uh, Edinburgh on a chair uh, by the students in, in my full robes, which um, which still makes people laugh then when they see the pictures. I, I dug some pictures out and showed them to um, some people not long ago. Um, but no, it was it was a really eye-opening experience because um, the University of Edinburgh is the the, um, uh, the biggest employer in in, in the Lothians in the in the, the Edinburgh region of 
of Scotland, and it was it was amazing. Um, you because the director has, has, has got a lot of responsibility, and um, we were doing a, a new hospital, and the teaching hospital faculty um, for medicine has to be attached to that. So um, you've got to watch what you're doing because you can you can be be liable for it. So you've got to to to, mm. to be fastidious and efficient, and um, uh, and work with the the um, university executive and, and admin who are not particularly keen on some unelected um, thick footballer coming in and, and, and having any say in their, their glorious institution at any point. But it was, it was again, it was a learning curve. It was, uh, it was an unpaid position and I put a lot of hours into it um, um, and, and didn't stand again. Um, but it was it was fascinating. Uh, but I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And they, they, they bestowed upon me a an honorary degree for my work there, and I swear that I earned that degree more than any student there. I put more hours in there than any student that's ever um, walked away with a with an honours degree from Edinburgh. Let me tell you, and I think wow. the, the university would have been. Um, yeah, but I was I was very nervous doing it to start with because yeah, um, yeah it, it, I was more intimidated going to to chair my very first university court than I was when I stepped onto a bus at um, at Celtic Park. Yeah, it's an incredible thing to have on your CV. Um, and, and you're still heavily involved in football too, right? Through coaching and I, the media. I am, I, when I came out, I, I, I went into the media for, for a year and I became a pundit and I was doing, but I was doing that before I, before I stopped. I, I did um, a uh, Scotland Sunday column um, for a long time when I was playing from, I was about 27. And I was writing everything myself. Um, uh, so I think it's Dorothy Sayers. When people say, "Oh, tell me, John, who writes that for you?" <laughs> and it always I could because I knew I wrote every single word myself. I could turn in and say, um, "Nobody, but can you tell me who reads it for you?" Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I, I did. I did that for a long time. You know, we got beat five one with Rangers in the, in the Scottish Cup final, and um, and I wrote an eight hundred word column about my feelings from the dressing room after that, um, uh, which I don't think pleased the manager. But um, but but that was the kind of thing I was doing. So I went into the media for a year and I wasn't really feeling, feeling it. Um, it was kind of easy. And, and also, I wasn't entirely comfortable that um, that I was commentating on things that, that, that had no consequence for me. You know I mean, it's easy for a pundit. It was easy for me to go and say, oh, Celtic should be doing this, Hart should be doing that. Because there's never any consequences for me saying he shouldn't mm. be playing him, he shouldn't be playing him. So then I got uh, I got headhunted by by Simon Fuller to become a uh, to become a football agent um, uh, who had the Spice Girls at the time and, and then gloriously fell out fell out with them because I don't know the full story and then Simon disappeared and and, um, and and I didn't really want to become a football agent um, and then they brought somebody else in I became a consultant and we did um, Steve McManaman's deal to. Real Madrid in, as part of the company and then we brought in a, a Japanese player Hidetoshi Nakata to, mm-hmm. to Perugia from, from Japan um, and I was kind of learning that trade and then uh, my partner and I came to an agreement with Simon we set up our own shop and then we had that for 17 years a great agency um, boutique uh, with Theo Walcott from an early age Shula Army Obe with uh, Phil Jones who I still look after um, uh, we had a lot of players and then we, we sold it in 2014 and um, we had more than Hundred players on 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 board and and um, I kind of I've, I'm still consulting for them, but then I moved on to other things. I got my own coaching business. I bought off of Ian Cathro, which is which I love. It's a tremendous program, 
in terms of developing players and developing coaches. Um, and then now I'm involved in something um, that's that's now moving on um, in the ways of football now. You know, I, I talked about how, how the vocabulary has changed. I don't really understand and accept that, but I do think the big change in, in, in life and sport is data. Mm. And uh, one of the businesses I'm involved in now is, a, um, is an injury prediction, prevention um, uh, data a company called Zone 7 that is fascinating and it's, that's an area that fascinates me and I think that any club any club that's not heavily invested in data in terms of everything they do not just in terms of recruitment or scouting or um, injury and well-being mm. and, and uh, you right across the board they'll get left behind the forward thinking ones why are Brentford on their budget um, outperforming why Atlanta and, and Italy outperforming why Getafe and Spain outperforming, um, Michelin in Denmark outperforming, Liverpool in, 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 in England outperforming, heavily, heavily invested in data. And I don't just mean invested in it in terms of financially, um, because it's not always that expensive, but investing in it and believing in it. So, so yeah, so that's what, that's what um, yeah, I've kind of done since I finished playing. And, and you've, got, you've got to move. You've got to understand that the game's changing. Eh? Mm. The game's changing. Indeed. Sometimes some days for the bad. Yeah. Well, you've got, if I was to give you a chance to go back in time to have a word with yourself in 1986 and pass on one piece of advice, apart from maybe uh, nobbling Dundee's Albert Kid, uh, what might it be? Take time to enjoy it. Take time to enjoy it at the time. This, this is the, um, the only way I can describe it because I, I, I give this analogy about my grandchildren, when, when you played in, in great football games and you come off, and, and the higher you go up, the less fun it is. That's just my opinion. I think most players will tell you that. The higher you go up, the more pressure. And there's more and more pressure now with social media, with, with the spotlight. And, and you mean it's just constant, incessant, and, and mm. um, prizing areas that it just shouldn't. Um, but that's life now. Um, so the pressures on them are, are, are enormous. But, you mean, I think you used to come off and you played in a great game and you'd be sitting with your mates having a coffee or a, a, a beer or, as I said, I wasn't really a drinker. So, and they'd say, oh, that must be amazing. What a game that was to watch. And, and she go, not really, because I was doing it. I wasn't enjoying that. I was doing it. And I think it's the same with parent, parenting and grandparenting. As a parent, you're too busy doing it. You enjoy it, but it's not the same as with grandchildren. You're sitting above it. You're the guy in the stand. We're the guys in the stand. Mm. And then our children are looking after them and taking the pressure and dealing with all the day-to-day nuts and bolts. Whereas when you're doing it, when, you're, when, you're, when you are that parent, when you are that player, you're not in the stands enjoying it. Joy, your players have got to enjoy it more because it's a, it's a, it's a cliche that it's gone before you know and it is gone before you know. But, and it took me a long, long time to be able to look back and enjoy anything that I did play. Because I always kind of thought I was really, really ordinary as a player. Really ordinary. Like, I didn't have any tricks. In my coaching business, we teach tricks all the time. I didn't have one. My only trick was, and, and anybody watching me and anybody that knows me, well, no, anybody that saw me playing, whether they're opposing fans that hated me or didn't like me or thought I was just, just ordinary, 
or or my supporters or my teams, only the only thing was I try and get players off balance, and use my pace. That was it. So I knew when my pace went, I was done. Eh? <laughs> that was it. I was I was you know, I was done. I didn't have anything. There was nothing else in the locker. I couldn't go looking and say, "Oh, I'll go and slip into centre midfield and spray past." It was my game. I mean, pace was my game. I went. I knew I was done when I went to play against a player that I could have. I could. I could have had no sleep at all for five weeks, and I could have walked by him. And I tried to do it one day, and I tried to put the the, the afterburners on, and there was nothing there. Eh? Mm. I kind of knew that day, this isn't going to last much longer. So, the, so, so what I would say to people. The players, um, men and women playing at the top level, as high as I got, and higher is to try and enjoy it more. The good times and the bad times, because the bad times are still good. Eh? Yeah, I know that sounds weird, but the bad times are still good because a lot of supporters would love to have enjoyed the bad times that I endured. If that well, makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, um, John. It's been. Such a fantastic hour chatting with you. Um, I really appreciate you coming on to uh, what happened to you. You're on Twitter, aren't you? What's your What's your handle on there so uh, fans can interact I, with I, you? I, I'm not bothered about that. That's just kind of something I got I got pulled in. I, I kind of got pulled in. I'm not I'm not after followers. I'm not after. It's not my game, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I'm on I'm on Twitter. I can tell you what my handle is. Um, but that's not my game. I'm not on. I've got nothing to sell. <laughs> Nothing to sell. I'm just me, and um, uh, so anybody wants to find me finds me. You know I mean that's the the kind of thing I've. Uh, but I appreciate you asking me on. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to what happened to you. You can find us across all the main podcast platforms. So please don't forget to subscribe. For updates about future guests and new episodes, follow us on Twitter at WHTYPod. For extra content related to what happened to you, including the original interviews that inspired this episode, visit our friends The Set Pieces at www.thesetpieces.com and follow them on Twitter at The Set Pieces. We'll be back again soon, so until next time, goodbye.